Hello, everyone. It is time to head north. Of course, this is our podcast for the North Group. I'm Natasha Ryan. I'm the VP of Communications and Business Development. I have Vince Rocco Vargas here, my counterpart in the business development realm. And of course, you might recognize his handsome face from the show, Mayans MC. Today, we are chatting with Liz Frank from Hostage US. Liz, so great to have you. Thank you so much. I actually randomly got introduced to your organization on a LinkedIn feed and just had to know more. So why don't we start off with a little bit of background about who you are and what the organization is and how you got started? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Natasha. It's really good to be here. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you both. Um, so I am the executive director of um, an NGO called Hostage US, and uh, just as a brief background, what we do is we support families of Americans who are wrongfully detained or held hostage abroad, and we support them back to life when they get home. So there's kind of two elements of it. It's, it's one element of supporting the family when they have a loved one being held, and then that person wants their release and get back, um, get back home we help them to rebuild their lives. So uh, I guess just backing up a little bit, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the need because I think it's it's important to put a context around why we're here and why people um, should be interested in, in the issue in general. And that is um, in part because, uh, well, it's it's Americans being held wrongfully abroad, which is, I think, an, a, you know, a bipartisan issue everyone can get behind. But the reality is there's um, at any given time upwards of about 100 folks who are wrongfully held uh, abroad. And that is a number that is kind of continuing to increase, uh, especially with wrongful detentions in, in the U.S. So every year we estimate there's around 200 of these cases because um, folks are taken and, and released. But there are really, really long term uh, cases, of course, cases that you've heard of, Austin Tice, um, you know, many others who have been released this past year. And then there's cases that are not in the media. So the numbers that, that you might see in this news and, and the media and press and stories that you hear about releases, you have to remember that there's many, many more that aren't broken in the media. And that's for, you know, safety reasons and things like that. So we started, we launched in 2016, and it was a direct result of then President Obama's uh, hostage policy review in 2015. So there's a series of Americans who were murdered in 2014. Obama then ordered a uh, hostage policy review to essentially assess what we're doing in the US government about hostage recovery, hostage um, planning, and then just making sure that, that in general, the government is supporting American families the best that they can. So from that review, it was apparent that there was a gap in support for families. Um, and we're talking emotional, practical, um, professional services, the support that the government isn't necessarily set up to do, um, and certainly better so now than they were in 2015, but their goal is to get the person home. But there's a lot of other things that go along with that, and that's a suffering family, a suffering community and things like that. So we started out um, and continue on as that support side of things, the NGO um, folks who are there to make sure that the family makes it through and that the former hostage gets back on their feet when they return home. 
You know, when I first spoke with you, Liz, there were so many things that just blew my mind that I had never thought about, right? Like you talked about how the breadwinner of the family gets plucked out, out of nowhere and just disappears. And now the the practical side of it, let alone like your loved one has been taken, right? Like set emotions aside, like the actual monetary constraints that are now put on that family. Uh, I want you to speak to that because I, I know I don't think anyone thinks about that. And like, it's just another hardship that's thrown on top of the emotional one. Right. Like that's a lot to bear. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Um, it's it's one of those situations where you you don't have any need to think about it until you have to. And then it's you're thrown into this you know vortex of things happening and trying to keep up with regular life. So oftentimes when when somebody is taken, uh, like you said, either it's the breadwinner, or maybe it's not, but there will be a changed income for the family, right? Naturally, if that person is is working and they're taken, um, unfortunately, and this is a surprise to many people, but unfortunately, most uh, organizations won't continue a salary even if the person was there on work and taken, um, you know, on work, there's, there's companies that do and, you know, bless them. Cause that's, that's, um, a huge, uh, ask, but it's really their kind of duty of care to do so. But many organizations can't, or just won't, um, continue the salary. So the family is faced with, you know, paying lawyers, paying, uh, response organizations, paying media consultants for, managing the case, yet they have this massive change in income that that they have to live on. So as you can imagine, their quality of life is very, very different. So they find themselves, um, you know, once they kind of get past the, the shock of, of, of having someone taken, they find, find themselves with serious and massive financial challenges. So, you know, one of them is literally just paying the bills. Another for wrongful detention cases is oftentimes uh, families will hire a lawyer in the country that they're being held, uh, you know, so that they have somebody on the ground kind of being able to visit the prison uh, or bring the, the prisoner some money and, and things like that. And, you know, um, finding a, a suitable lawyer in country is, is really expensive. And then paying them every every time that they visit your loved one and things like that. So these expenses are um, kind of astronomical for any any just kind of regular family going through this. Um, and Liz, yeah. Sorry, Liz, I have this crazy, I mean, I knew what we were going to talk about, but then when you started talking more, it got me excited because I have a friend who was detained in Pakistan and mm -hmm. he was detained for three years. And there's a documentary on it. It's the Eric Auday story. He uh, worked with me on in television. He's a stuntman now, but he had this thriving career as a, as a teen actor. He was really coming up. And then in between trying to make money, uh, he was persuaded by uh, a gentleman saying to transport leather goods across the country. And he was doing it for good money because as an actor, sometimes we're not working. And when doing that, after the second time, he was arrested and as, as a drug smuggler, didn't know that the, the, the lining of the suitcase was heroin mm -hmm. and ended up doing three years in prison. And he was on, he was on pretty much a death sentence. They were going to kill him until it, 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 he, this story is just tragic because he had to fight so hard to do that. And in that he lost his whole acting career. He just, he does stunts now. And he's very successful in that, but he talked to me about personally about 
how much he lost in those three years and just credibility alone from people that just never believed he didn't know. Right. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that story. And, and that, uh, you know, it's, it's something that happens, I think all too often to, to Americans traveling abroad. And um, you're exactly right in the context of the three years, you know, he, he was arrested and then fighting for his freedom for three years, but everything else was put on hold. So like you said about the career aspect of it, that is incredibly right. challenging for people coming home. And if you think about it, you know, if he if he then was building a career in Pakistan and, and couldn't go back there or, you know, didn't feel comfortable to go back there, then you're right. He starts from scratch. Right. And that's what yeah. we see with, you know, aid workers who are taken in a certain country that they feel really passionately about that they're supporting and they're working there for many, many years. And then they get taken hostage. Well, when they're released, obviously very good news, but for their livelihood, for their passion, it's bad news because now, you know, they're not going to go back to the place they were taken uh, hostage and now have to restart their lives. So, you know, it's the same with contractors or, yeah, journalists or aid workers or kind of anyone. It's just like you, you get home and that's a good thing, but then it's like, what next? And so that that's a really big part of our, our work is helping folks figure out what could be next, um, you know, getting their physical, mental health back in order so that they can have a next, that type of thing. And it's um, that that part is is something we call um, surviving survival. And it's getting back to actually, you know, figuring out what that next stage of your life is and trying to survive that part after all of the, you know, high fives and hugs of getting home. It's what next. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that's exactly the, the next step of trying to figure out life all over again. Are you guys actively working all over the world? Like you guys are a resource for anywhere in the world from Mexico to Middle East everywhere? Yeah, it's a good question. So Hostage US is is our mandates actually very specifically for Americans who are held uh, abroad. But we have a sister organization, Hostage International who um, manages you know cases of all other nationalities. And we did that very purposefully, of course. Um, unfortunately, that a lot of Americans are being held and it, it was um, enough so that it was needed to have its own organization set up here in the U.S. to be able to handle those cases. Um, and Hostage International does um, everything that we do uh, just for kind of other other nationalities. I want to talk a little bit about perception and reality. So I think, you know, when when people this was another revelation I have when we talked. So when people think about hostage situations, they think, oh, the military is going to get involved. They're going to go. They're going to rescue them with special forces and they're going to bring them home. And it's it's going to be like as soon as they find out, they're going to go in and get them. It's way more laborious than that. Right. Mm -hmm. Because the government's pace is slower than most people realize. Mm -hmm. And then what you said to me that I didn't I did not know is it's ultimately the family's choice on whether the military moves in and does that op. And there are reasons sometimes that that's seemingly not a good idea. Can you talk a little bit to all of that for me? Yeah, yeah. And um, to, to, I guess to clarify the, the family's um, option or the family's choice bit of it is that most, um, most of the time the family will get the okay. There's been, I think, a, t a couple times where uh, the family's okay wasn't received because it was, it was a move or don't move situation. And there was a call that was made, which is, um, you know, fair enough. I'm not a military person, but can, can certainly understand the need to move quickly. Um, so 
rescue operations, as you and probably many of your listeners can imagine and understand that they're incredibly dangerous, right? Not only for the, the operators themselves, the rescue, the military themselves, but also for the person being rescued. Oftentimes the, they're being held in a place that, um, yeah, the, the military will have intel, of course, on where it is, but the you know surroundings, the, the, the exact location of where the person's being held might be a little iffy, that type of thing. Not to mention you're being likely guarded by armed guards and things like that. So it is really quite a risky um, method of getting someone home. And it's not even always possible because oftentimes fam uh, hostages are sold to different groups. They're moved about quite often to, so that people don't know where they are. It's, it's you know, it's um, a business to keep someone rather than to allow the um, their home country to know where they are. So it is, you know, it's a risky, risky uh, option to rescue, but that, you know, it's been successful oftentimes and it's unfortunately been unsuccessful in, in other cases. And, and that's incredibly difficult um, for obviously the family to make that okay and you know say that's something that we'd be open to and something that we would want um i mean the the other options of course for hostage cases let's take kind of wrongful detention cases off um the, the table in this in this conversation but the other um options for getting home of course are, are um, escape which some do and and that's you know you have to be incredibly um risky you know um uh, willing to take a risk and and obviously it's um can be incredibly challenging in certain circumstances to even attempt that so it can be um you know a military rescue it can be an escape um oftentimes hostage cases are not dealt with in diplomatic ways or at least resolved in diplomatic ways but sometimes we've heard of that type of kind of humanitarian release um and so there's not so many options on the table for you as, um, you know, as a, as a hostage. And the U.S. government doesn't um, offer concessions to terrorist groups. And, you know, that has been, I think, made very, very clear over the past um, couple of years. However, in the 2015 um, policy review, it was, you know, um, understood that we would, we as the U.S. government would, come to the table at least to hear, you know, hear about, hear from the hostage takers, their, their demands and not, um, you know, offer concessions, but certainly um, hear what they are, are asking for. And it's been, um, you know, ransom payments in general um, have been a point of contention in this issue. And certainly Hostage US does not have um, a stance on ransom payments. And it is very much up to a family to decide if that is the route they want to go. Um, however, the US government used to, um, you know, threaten uh, legal action against families who would like to or did even raise ransom and, and pay um, for the release of their loved one. And after their policy review, it was Obama, you know, verbally said, we're not going to press charges against uh, families or individuals for, for doing so, because as, you know, as humans, we can all understand fighting for, you know, your family kind of no matter what, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the undertaking of a hostage rescue from the tactical standpoint of my background is, that's 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 a stressful one. So Natasha, when you ask that question, is like the families need to know that there's potential for collateral damage, and sometimes collateral damage is 
is is a loss of life then yeah Oof, and that is heavy so what a what a an awesome organization that i had no idea even existed to be honest and i think it's it's important because so i was a homeland security i was part of border patrol for for seven years uh as well and you know there is uh americans getting getting uh kidnapped to to Mexico from time to time. And I've been ha- been on some of those calls uh, for assistance and had no idea that, you know, Hostage US was uh, an organization that we could use as a resource. And so uh, I'm grateful that that I know this now and I'll be keeping that in my back pocket. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the the challenges of getting out there is, you know, this is just, just being, you know, it's a it's a low incidence of the crime compared to other crimes that we see and hear about in the U.S. naturally, but it is one that is it's so massively impactful for the person, the family, and the community. It's just really kind of earth shattering uh, experience that it is different than than um, you know other crimes in that it goes on for weeks, months, years, and then there is that period of kind of rebuilding everything that you know you have um, lost during that time. And I'll say also, it's um, it's not just you know the the family or the the um, the hostage themselves also, but think about their coworkers and their employees who are then placed into similar you know countries or postings and things like that. So it really does kind of have this ripple effect of, um, of, of, you know, trauma or secondary trauma for not only the person who was held, but the family, the community and that type of thing. I think about how, I mean, you have a very small staff to run this organization. And I think about how just handling the financial side of this, you could have a whole company, let alone having to then also, which I'm sure you do, have to be an emotional support for people because it must be so defeating to want to turn to get help and you're, you don't know who to go to because there's really, it, it's not like just calling the police, you know? So like you have to do all of these jobs. I mean, that's gotta, that's gotta weigh on you sometimes. Yeah, that's um, really important and interesting. And thank you for bringing that point up. Uh, so one of the things that we we do for our people is um, we try to ob- obviously provide um, peer support. Uh, so we, we have a team and I'll get into kind of how we work, actually, because I think that piece is really interesting and kind of walk you through a case or two. Um, but we do take the secondary or vicarious trauma, it's called. So when you're supporting someone who's going through a trauma, it's, you know, very, very common for you to come become quite close with them and to understand a bit more intimately, you know, their lives and and become um, kind of part of their trauma almost, right? So it's very common that you might take that on and start to absorb it. Yeah, exactly. So any kind of break in the case, it's like, you're on you're you know, you're seeing the news alert just as quickly as the family is, you're on with the family trying to support them yet you're actually kind of trying to process it as well. Um, So we we do have um, things in place. And we do an annual mental health assessment for our team where we just talk to um, actually uh, GW University Hospital does it in in DC. And you know, they have um, folks who can help us kind of work through any challenging cases and things like that. 
Um, and then we, like I said, we do um, peer, peer case kind of review calls. So it's similar to a social work structure in that we have this, um, you know, peer support system set up over, over um, cases and uh, with, yeah, with each other. Um, but let me walk you through a case. So yeah. I think it's, yeah, I think kind of to your point, Natasha, it's, it's hard to conceptualize, I think, what hostage US does or can do. And I think it's even hard for families who reach out to us to conceptualize that because it is incredibly different depending on what case we're working on. So I'm going to start with the fact that we support hostage cases and wrongful detention cases. So hostage case is your typical kind of what we've been um, talking more so about held by a hostage or held by a terrorist or a criminal group, right? So those are folks who are being held by rogue actors who are asking for a concession from your family, from the government, et cetera. Wrongful detention cases are, you know, the, the folks who are held by uh, state actors. So think Venezuela, think Russia, Iran, China, and kind of a handful of, of other countries that we work with. So when we're introduced to a case, um, we can be introduced at any point, but let's talk when we're kind of introduced before a case really kind of gets going. So sometimes folks who hear, don't hear from their loved ones are Google searching, you know, hostage and that type of term and find us and give us a call. And the first step, of course, is that we would refer them to their FBI field uh, agent so that they would be in contact with either the FBI or the embassy in the country that the person's being held. And that's, you know, our, our kind of standing line is to suggest that um, if they have no operational support yet, that they do indeed get um, get in touch with the government. If they have, you know, if they're with a company and they do have a um, kidnap and insurance ransom policy, and that policy is then, um, you know, covered by a crisis response company, the crisis response company is likely already involved and kind of working the case from that side. So when we get, um, you know, introduced to a family and we kind of know that their response side of things is in place and they're getting those pieces in order, um, we then kind of help them to assess what it might look like. So what we do is kind of get a rundown of everything that they've been dealing with in the first couple of days. The first couple weeks are going to be a lot of emotional support from us. So a lot of um, expectation setting, kind of talking to families about um, considering, you know, this might be a, a longer term case than um, we'd like, which is you know, any minute longer is a longer term case than we'd like. But, you know, just trying to help families think through what they might need to face in the coming um, weeks and months. And oftentimes, depending on, um, you know, the type of, of um, kidnapping or wrongful detention, you might have some case studies to look at, right, to understand how long it might be or that type of thing. So, we, we help to kind of get the family emotionally at least um, supported well enough in those first couple of days and, and weeks. Uh, then we start helping families. Liz, you're muted. There we go. So Natasha, some of the things we had um, we had talked about before, uh, like you know, um, either they get a lawyer in country or they might need to to start um, paying some bills. So some of the other financial things that we approach actually in those first couple weeks are um, 
just thinking through any bank accounts that the person has opened, maybe we're in uh, February or March or April, and they might have a tax, you know, a tax filing due at the end of April. So starting to think through these things that might impact when they come home, how difficult it is to reintegrate. So oftentimes, if people are held for multiple years and haven't filed taxes, they'll return home with, you know, fines and interest and all these things that are incredibly difficult to take off your your IRS account or to waive. Um, You know, I mean, just any issue with the IRS is annoying to begin with. And imagine being, you know, not filing for years and coming home and trying to figure that out. So um, there's a a guy called Jason Rezion who um, who's wonderful. He he was held in um, Iran for about 18 months and he came home and, and had, because of the time period that he was gone, even though it was less than um, two years, but it was three years of filings that he had, um, that he had missed. And he came home to thousands of dollars of fines and it took him and I years and actually talking to the national security advisor to even remotely get that fixed. We never got it entirely fixed, but we got to a point where it was thankfully much, much, much lower than, than it, um, it was when he returned. So we get families to start thinking about these types of things so that, you know, when the, the person does come home, it is a little bit of an easier reintegration process. So, um, so it's the IRS, it's any bills. So if the person has rent that's, you know, automatically deducted from their account or just not being paid, that can ruin their credit when they come home. So they need to start talking to, you know, the landlords of these places at the, the hostage rents and things like that to make sure that the bills aren't outstanding or that they don't have, you know, any, any nicks on their um, credit when they come home. So uh, that's kind of early stages. And then as we get in, you know, into the next period of time, um, if we're talking a longer term case, sometimes um, power of attorney issues start to become very prevalent and um, challenging. So, you know, for instance, if, if a, a spouse wants to sell their house or, you know, um, sell some some assets because they need more money to, to continue paying for the case. You know, oftentimes if the, if there is a spouse, then the house will be in both names or the assets will be in both names and it's not possible to sell. So, you know, these power of attorney issues can be really, really challenging for families who are just trying to kind of continue their normal day to day life and figure out, um, you know, how they're going to get the finances to do that. So we're oftentimes working with real estate lawyers or, um, you know, lawyers who can help create conservatorships or receiverships, which would be kind of the alternative avenue to a power of attorney. Um, if there's not one in place, which I can say pretty much across the board is, is the case, unfortunately, uh, just because as Americans, you know, we don't travel thinking the worst case scenario, you know, not many of us will consider putting a power of attorney in place for any sort of trip. So, you know, the likelihood of the families um, that we support having those in place are, are very low, unfortunately. Um, well, you can bet and- if I travel overseas now, I will. <laughs> I never thought of that. I mean, you don't think of that kind of thing. No, never have. Sorry, I can't hear you guys. Huh. Um, well, you're not muted on our end. Let's see. We can hear you. You can hear Did us. You can hear me. Yeah. You can hear me. Okay. 
You can't hear us? Your Bluetooth on? Did your Bluetooth on your headsets turn on? I can't hear you. Hold on. Let me try putting these in. I'm I think the Bluetooth chat. on those turned on. Got it. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, can you hear uh, us? Yes, sorry about that. So I want to ask, like, how can we, like anyone watching, like, you know, you and I had the conversation, right? Like TNG is a risk mitigation firm. We can help out in all sorts of um, intelligent aspects and, and all of that. But like, you know, pro bono, everything is like donated to you guys for the most part, because it has to be. So if people are watching and they're in the security sector, like how, how can people help? Essentially, I guess, is my question. I love that question. Um, it's my favorite question. So, um, yeah, we, we have, I mean, it, it's, it is a unique um, organization in that, like you said, Natasha, we do have a very, very small staff and we rely very heavily on uh, volunteers and we have kind of different areas of, of volunteers. And because we're, we're non-operational, having, having, you know, groups like the North Group be able to be that kind of operational um, option for families, that referral process can be really a nice help for to fill in where we stop. But in terms of the hostage US support, so we actually operate um, through a group of uh, what we call support coordinators to actually deliver the services. So it's myself and my colleague Winnie uh, on staff, and she oversees the family support program. And under kind of her purview is our support coordinator team. And these are all folks who have, um, you know, in some way been touched by the issue, whether personally or professionally or, you know, otherwise uh, just been interested in what we do because of, um, yeah, either personal or professional reason. And they oftentimes have um, full-time jobs and we recognize that. So we kind of keep folks case levels um, or numbers quite low, but they will um, volunteer with us. And what they'll do is essentially be connected to a family and be that caseworker for that particular family. And they walk, you know, it's, they walk beside them pretty much from day one until when the person comes home. And when the person comes home, you know, as I've said before, you know, then we pick up right where where they need support and offer support to that person. So these are, um, you know, professionals from security background, military um, folks who are spouses or, you know, sons, daughters of, of former hostages, or just folks who have some sort of uh, mental health background who are interested in Kind of this this work and these um we have about 15 of that of our team members right now and we go through uh fairly regular training sessions with winnie and i and we do um you know intro training all the way through to really specific topic uh topic specific training on certain aspects of family support and how you might be there for a hostage or wrongful detainee family through the case so we have those support coordinator folks um and we have a bucket of financial advisory um, advisors who work directly with families on those financial issues. And so half of them are, are financial advisors and the others are CPAs. And those kind of two ideas work really nicely together so that families can have, you know, the full picture of their finances and then really specific help with tax and, and accounting issues. Um, we have law firms on, on our partner strategic partner list, and those will 
you know, offer pro bono help for any of those legal issues that we were talking about, and then uh, mental health advisors. And from there, we have individuals who have really specific expertise uh, who are just kind of connected to the organization. So, you know, we have um, folks from think tanks who can help connect us with location specific experts. So if, you know, someone's taken by uh, the Houthis in Yemen, then their family can be briefed really deeply and really detailed on exactly what that group is and, you know, what this experience might be for that person who's being held, which can be a really um, helpful kind of um, sets scene setter for the family, you know, to understand who the group is that's, that's holding yeah. their loved one. Well, I just want to say thank you for coming on. Vince, do you have any final thoughts or questions? No, I think it's an awesome organization. I'm excited to, to know now. And, and definitely, I know it's a resource uh, here in Utah. We've had a few incidents where someone's gone over to Mexico and, and is being detained unfairly. And so yeah. those are cases that we're probably still going to be able to work and we'll be able to get a hold of you guys for that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Liz, thank you for your time. And of course, if you want to hear more about her organization, you can reach out to her directly on LinkedIn or us, the North Group. And of course, continue to visit all of our social media outlets, Spotify, iTunes, our website, tngdefense.com for more podcast episodes just like this one. So until the next one, thank you, Rocco. Thank you, Liz. Have a great day. Everybody.